Hi, everyone. On this episode of the Duke Tip Podcast, we will be talking to our guest, John Claude Bemis, about his YA books. We'll also talk about dystopia, cake pops, and tectonic plates. Hi, I'm Tracy. She's Katie. And he's Michael. We're all colleagues at Duke Tip, the talent identification program. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging gifted students, inspiring them to take pride in their abilities, and fostering their educational, social, and emotional development. That's Duke Tip, and this is the Duke Tip Podcast. We talk about motivating academically talented students, following through on your passions, and learning to love learning. We'll talk to educators, guidance counselors, admissions officers, scientists, authors, artists, entrepreneurs, journalists, and anyone else who might have something to say to the parents and teachers of academically talented students and to the students themselves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number one of the Duke Tip Podcast. Today in the studio, Katie and I are going to be talking to John Claude Bemis. John is the author of a number of books for elementary and middle school students, including Out of Abaton, The Wooden Prince, as well as three books in the Clockwork Dark trilogy. And available for pre-order now, the second book in the Out of Abaton series, Lord of Monsters. He's a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and also a veteran educator. He taught fourth and fifth grade for 13 years and was a gifted education resource teacher. John, thanks so much for being here and welcome to the Duke Tip Podcast. I am thrilled to be with you all. Wow, I can't believe I'm number one. This is great. I'm honored to be the inaugural episode, if that's the case. <laughs> we'll talk to John about his areas of expertise a little later, but first, oh, you know what I learned? All I learned was we know nothing. And I learned it from watching you. Oh, you know what I learned? This is the segment where we describe the single most fascinating thing we've each learned recently. Katie, you want to go first? Sure. Um, this past month, I actually embarked on this study to learn about big wave surfing, of all things. It started when I went to Full Frame Documentary Festival, and I saw a, a documentary called uh, Take Every Wave about the life of Laird Hamilton. And what I learned that was so fascinating was there was a group of guys in Hawaii who were determined to take on 30 and 40 and 50-foot waves, but the equipment did not allow them to do so. So without any training at all in physics and aerodynamics or engineering in their garages. They, they literally began shaping surfboards to be longer and narrower. They added straps, and then they devised this combination propeller rudder on a long stick, really? put it on the bottom of their, wet, their surfboards, and are able to float about a foot or two above the surface of these massive waves. They're not even in the water, but they say they can feel every ounce of energy of the waves. Wow. And eventually they took the idea to engineers like at Northrop Grumman or someplace like that. And the guy said to them, you guys figured it all out on your own. Cool. And I just thought it was amazing that they were able to kind of intuit that kind of knowledge and put it into action. How long did it take? I think it took uh, maybe part of the 80s and 90s. Oh, very cool. And then wow. it burst out. And then they began doing the commercial longboards that you could surf with. And it became a big business. But it all started in a garage. And That's some guys cool. with a passion and an idea. It makes me think that um, – have you ever read that Malcolm Gladwell book? I think it's uh, Blink. Is that the one? But it's the one where it talks a lot about like in, intuitive – like mm. those art – people that could spot a work of art that right. may or may not have been a fraud – and they could they couldn't say why, but they knew you know they just kind of intuitively knew. But like one of his points in there was that you had to have a huge knowledge base to get to that point where right. you 
intuitively can just call that kind of thing. And I, I'm sure that those surf, you know, that not just anyone would have been able to pull off those surfboards. I'm oh, sure. Oh yeah, they've been yeah. living on them. They could, they were part of it. They could feel it. I've got that book is on my bookshelf now. I'm going to read it. Yeah, yeah, good one. What's yeah. so cool about that too is that you think about the the, the surfer stereotype, and it's not an engineer. Right, like right. it's not somebody who goes home and tinkers on an idea for right, right. Very, and some yeah. of those guys in the documentary, it's very obvious they're super, super smart, right. super aware. Uh, they just don't fit the stereotype right. of, a, right. of a of a nerd, so to speak. Well, there's right. different forms of intelligence. Yes, right. right, cool. Uh, we also want to give our guest a chance to share. John, what have you learned? Well, I was thinking about it, and you know, so. There, there's different, I guess there's different ways that we, we learn. You know, we learn by watching like documentaries or we watch by reading books and, you know, that kind of knowledge. And I've been reading a lot of, I read a lot of nonfiction as an author, but I was thinking about another, another kind of learning, one where you, you spend that time just reflecting on something, mm. you know, thinking about something that, that you find interesting. And I've had, I've been in the car a lot lately for doing a, a author visits. I get out into schools. And um, on my car rides, I've been thinking about some of the what I've been teaching in some of these school visits. And one of the things that, you know, a lot of what I do when I work with kids is kind of talking about uh, creative writing and coming out with ideas and especially focused on kind of the creativity side of it. And one of the exercises that I do with the kids is just these what if questions, like such a simple thing at first. But, you know, writers use it all the time. You know, this idea of, you know, like. When they're coming up with a story idea, you know, like what what if uh, my what if our pets just started talking one day, you know, and that what the writer does is they kind of run with that in their imagination, and they have to do a lot of kind of deep thinking about the possibilities of where that might go, you know, if you know what I like if my pets talk, you know, how would it change you know, society, right. or you know, like, how would you use it in a story? Anyway, I use that technique a lot with kids, but on on a couple of the the car rides back, I was thinking about other ways of using what if questions. So my daughter's fourth grade. And um, they've been doing, they were doing a big civil rights program. You know, she gave a, a what if, but a, like a historical what if, you know, that, which was, she was thinking one night she said, well, what if, what if George Washington had been black? Hmm. How would, you know, how, and, and it led to, and this is the great thing about this what if questions is that it's kind of opens up all these possibilities of where it can go. Like if history had gone in a different direction, you know, here's the science fiction fantasy alternate history yes, right? actually alternate history nerd in me you know starting to pose those other questions to her and thinking about like yeah what like what would have to have been different historically for it for george washington to have oh, cool. been the general of you know and then but it, it gave me the, the idea that you know that it would be interesting as an educator and as a parent to to use those what if questions this kind of speculative side of, yeah. of learning yeah. in his, in historical things, or maybe even if you were doing like a science lesson, lesson on gravity, mm -hmm. and it could be the kind of like, well, what if, you know, we earth had only half the amount of gravity that we have or double the amount, how would things, how would things have to be, you know, and, it, and it, it's a way of approaching learning right. and mm -hmm. thinking yeah. in a way that kind of, you know, if, if, if it already, I think, engages the imagination in a way, but then allows you to take a little deeper dive into it. And so, yeah. anyway, you know, I've just been thinking about those other ways of using that question besides how I had been using it just with kids and coming up with story ideas. Yeah. Well, I think it also, particularly with kids, I think it helps with critical thinking, but it also sort of looks at history as uh, area, allows us to think about history as a, a sort of a sequence or uh, a combination of variables, right? 
Right. So if you think of history and even our country now as variables that we have control over, then what might you be able to think about changing yes. going forward, right? So it, it allows yes. you to, to think forward and say, okay, there's some agency in how things went down yes. in the right. past. And so what can we do going forward? That's very cool. Yeah. yeah. And anything that gets our kids out of a passive standpoint, yes. where they're just spectators watching social media, watching TV, and lets them start thinking about how they could affect the world is a good thing. Oh, yeah. And I think the interesting thing also, the way that question often goes, is that it doesn't just lead to an answer that resolves the whole conversation. Mm, right. And almost like the more you start thinking about it and the more answers you come up with opens up some more questions and you know what so that it just becomes a way that you, you could just kind of keep going deeper and oh, deeper, yeah. you know, or spreading, you know, and letting go in different directions. And if we and I think that it you know, especially for kids, if they start to um if that way of thinking becomes ingrained, you know, this kind of way of critically thinking about the world. I mean, it, it, it gives you, you know, that opportunity to really exercise a part of thinking that you can use in, even in your personal life, you know, like oh, what yeah. if in this situation yeah. I did the, you know, like this, my friend and I are having this problem or there's a sleepover coming up that I can't go to. So what if, you know, and then thinking of other possibilities of how to resolve something that might be a problem in your life. Right. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, oh, I think I that's like really it. important for gifted kids too. Cause they're so, some of them are so keyed into the right answer, mm -hmm. getting a hundred on the test and to let them delve into something where there is no right answer, where it's their opinion or right. creativity yeah. or imagination or critical thinking skills. That's really good for them. Cause that's a whole other layer of intelligence to put on top of this baseline of facts and knowledge they have. Oh yeah. Right. It's sort of exploration rather than, uh, you know, driving to a point. Right, which is totally different, which is totally for gifted, gifted mm -hmm. kids, the way they think. So what I learned last week, this is very cool. Um, I, I learned something from a talk that was given on campus at Duke. I really like attending talks on campuses. A lot of times they're free uh, and we live in a great area for uh, guest speakers and, and to, to be invited in and you get to go and listen to somebody who's an expert in the area. So I went to a talk um, by a former director of the National Park Service and I learned that Yellowstone uh, the national park uh, that includes Old Faithful uh, is actually situated on top of a tectonic plate on the North American plate. And that plate is moving and it's moving across a volcanic hotspot, which is why we have the geysers. Um, but eventually the current land that the park is on will actually move away from the hotspot because it's moving in the hotspot sort of staying still. Um, and it's moving at a rate of 3.3 uh, centimeters annually. And what got really weird about this fact is that the former national parks director said that's about the same rate as, as uh, the annual growth of a human fingernail. So I was with him until he said that. And then I was like, oh, but, but also cool, right? Like that, yeah. like you think about, you can actually notice the growth of your own fingernails. So this is the idea that there's this part of our, our globe, our country that is moving at a rate that we can notice kind of, right. um, over that hotspot. So if, if, you know, we're here in, I guess, you know, 200 years or whatever, and we still have national parks that look like Yellowstone, that one is actually going to have to move if it wants to stay over the geyser, like if the geysers are a part of the feature that we want to highlight. So that's pretty cool, right? Yeah, that is. Uh, all I can think of is that dude in the Guinness World Book of Records with the longest yes, fingernails. Oh, my God. Right, <laughs> right. It's like, it's, you know, I like similes, but then sometimes <laughs> yeah. they take you in a different direction. That's, yeah. So, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but I, <laughs> you stop thinking about Yellowstone and you're just thinking about creepy long fingernails. Yeah, exactly. But it was, a, I thought it was a cool fact that we that just, is you know, cool that we, what we think of is, being a static feature that we're you right. know focused on actually we're on thing we're on plates that are moving guys wow. we're not in the same oh, spot yeah. so mm -hmm. very cool 
so let's move on to tell me more. You look like you want to tell me something. Tell me something true. I have so much to learn from you. Tell me more. This is the part of the show where we delve into our guest's area of expertise. John, you're an author. You're an award-winning educator. You were North Carolina's Piedmont Laureate for Children's Literature. We could start in a lot of places, but I wanted to ask you, um, you say on your website that you get a lot of your ideas from traveling. So how do you translate real-life travel into fantastical adventure? Well, sometimes it's actually going to a place and and uh, then then that sparking the idea and using a lot of it. So, so for example, the this latest book, The Wooden Prince, which is um, a reimagining of the Pinocchio story, it grew out of a trip. I guess originally the first ideas were maybe fifteen years ago. I was in in Italy and just the you know being somewhere like. Italy, you know, with all that history and um, and just thinking about the possibility of, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to set a fantasy book in um, a historical Italy in some way? And at the time, it wasn't even necessarily a Pinocchio story, but it just had gotten me thinking about Italy as a place and maybe how to incorporate it into a story. And I've been a couple of other times, you know, it just has grown in that way. But sometimes it's just the travel. And when you travel to a new place and you and it's so different from the life that you you live normally you know that when you go to an if you go to japan or you go to iceland or or you go to rwanda or somewhere like that there everything things operate on slightly different rules and you are you are forced to then to to adapt to to try to figure out how 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 to follow these kind of some of these kind of cultural and uh rules and so forth and that i think just kind of just like bumps up my creativity. Whenever I go on a trip like that and I have to go somewhere else and I've been kind of forced to think in a different way, I just come back and have these huge, you know, spurts of creativity. And, and it doesn't often necessarily mean I'm pulling the ideas from the actual place, but the experience has just kind of, opened my mind up to some new ideas to put into a story. Like it's unhinging. I think there was a quote that uh, to travel is to take a journey inside oneself. I think it's something that I read at a friend's house. Uh, They have a plaque up, and I think it's so totally true, right? Right. Like you sort of really know yourself, or if you travel with someone, you really know them once you've traveled and removed yourself from the familiar sort of trappings, right? And if you're an adult and a parent and you have all these responsibilities, going away to a foreign country is one of the few ways to get away from all those responsibilities, even if you have a fun which you will find out, Tracy, when you go on your yes, honeymoon. It's true. Soon. It's, it's true. this wonderful insulated bubble. And I wonder if not having to worry about that day-to-day stuff just makes more room in your brain I for the creativity. Does. I think it does. So yeah. the trick would be how do you find that when you're still at home? How do you make that kind of space when you're still at home? Yeah, that's a good point. Well, yeah. and also yeah. like seeing other, seeing how other people in other cultures and countries uh, live their daily lives. Like to see how in the vast spectrum of humanity uh, there are different choices. Right? That's right. Yeah. Like, actually, that can be mind blowing. Yes, I, absolutely. I, I remember my first trip to Holland and Germany. I think that was my first trip to Europe. Just the toilet paper was different. <laughs> right. The water right. heaters right. were way different. These little square boxes right where the faucet was. Yeah. Just the day to day stuff. And you, there's a kind of arrogance in assuming that your life is how everybody else leads it. Or for a child, I think that's a big step forward in the education to understand that the world is very different right. in different places. Right. And when you're a writer, a lot of what you're you're doing is trying to get your your into the, the head of the character and trying to think you know what is this 
person going to do in this situation that I've I created. And it might be very different than the way I would handle this situation. And so the writer is often, you know, trying to, uh, you know, embody another person. And when you get into these other cultures and other places, you know, where you're really kind of thinking about, I wonder why people do this or why, you know, and that, that it just gives you more kind of fodder for character no, or empathy you know? you're suggesting i think yeah. empathy for That's, for people different from you and we could definitely use more of that yeah well and also recognizing that if folks are making different choices and they've lived a whole life in another location that you haven't been present they're probably good reasons right like i think that's something that is is still sort of a novel idea in some circles that if the choices are different doesn't mean they're worse actually they're probably pretty solid for that context for right. that person mm-hmm. they're they're still You're good right. choices even though they're different than the ones you might make so that's pretty cool uh so in the grand scheme of things uh what are you setting out to do when you sit down to write a book i um and i think this is one of the difference between when you write for a younger audience and maybe uh writers who write more for adults my, my experience in talking to a lot of writers, because I, I do not write books for adult readers. Now, I do have a lot of adult readers who enjoy the kind of books that I write, but you know, I'm thinking often about my audience. And I think a lot of writers who write in the adult market don't, you know, they're writing the book that they really want to write, and they're maybe not really thinking so much about their, their audience. But I'm often very, I have to be very aware of my audience because I want it to be something that is appealing for a younger reader that is going to be. I mean, first and foremost, entertaining because that's you know that's that's what I'm trying to do is create books that they will enjoy and that they will just love reading, but also will speak to them. You know that these characters will say something to them and get them to think about their lives and and it, so it has to have it has to have those qualities to it that are going to be important and valued by a younger reader. So you know that's that's a big part of what I do. and and but a lot of it is what what I really enjoy too, right. because, you know, I love reading these kind of books. I love, you know, I, I'm a huge, I'm, I'm the nerdy kind of guy who just loves thinking about fantasy worlds and all that. So it's enjoyable for me just to like do all that. You have my head in that space and to create these kind of worlds and characters. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm, I'm writing it for myself too, but I often also thinking about the kid that's going to read it one day. You know? Does having a nine-year-old daughter solidly in the age group of your audience help you understand better what it, they might respond to? I think so, for sure, because um, I realize my daughter is quite the, – the, what appeals to her um, right now being nine is different than what was appealing to me when mm-hmm. I was nine. You know, she is – she does read fantasy, but she's less of a fantasy nerd than, than I am. You know, she actually reads a lot more – uh, realistic fiction. And so in reading books with her or talking to her about those books, you know, I, it's, I, I learn a lot about what, what makes those stories uh, really, what, why, why they appeal to her. You know, I'm often kind of watching what she's reading and talking to her and kind of thinking about, you know, like, what did this writer do that really captivated her in that way, you know? I think there's a, I, how do you pronounce her name? Madeline Lingle? Yeah, Madeline Lingle. Lingle. Uh, I think she has a quote. Um, I hope she has a quote because mm. I'm saying it in the podcast, but uh, it's paraphrase, uh, you know, write the book you want. Um, 
And if it's too difficult, write it for children. Yes, I've heard that quote too. I think she did. Yeah, I think that is a quote by her. And that's, I think that's essentially yeah, what she I, said. And yeah. if it's too difficult, write it for if children. children yeah. If it is too difficult, write it for children. Wow, I would yeah. think it would be the opposite. Yeah, right? I think that's the idea. But so many awful books for adults that obviously they haven't put any editing or thought into. Yeah. I mean, what, you know, I guess maybe we could talk about that for a second. Like, what is it about? You know, youth fiction, YA fiction, because I'm a big YA fiction fan. I, I love do. science fiction fantasy. Yeah. I will drift towards the YA section before any real other. And why is that, do you think? What, what is it about those stories? I mean, I, mean, I think that, they're, they are wrestling with some big ideas. I think, you know, when you're doing like sort of a coming of age story or just this idea of transitioning from a youthful way of thinking to an adult way of thinking, I think that's hard stuff. Right. Um, and encountering what it means to be an adult and trying to sort of navigate that information and those, you know, ways of operating, I Which think. Which is really what it takes to be an adult navigating the world. Yeah, you know, teenage, yeah. It's just the same problems, yeah. just on a different level. Yeah. I like it because young adult novels are distilled because the plot's distilled, the character right. development's distilled. Oh, I'm the kind of person, yeah. if I start reading a book, I'll stay up all night and finish it and right. read it. I, I just can't put it down. Or look ahead. Um, no, don't do that if you're listening. Um, <laughs> but I really, I really love it, especially because I feel like you know this essence that you find in the young adult novels. When you get into the bigger novels, they've basically just taken that and padded it mm. with a bunch of description. And after a while, you just get really tired right. of all the description. Yes, right. you do. Yeah, and a lot of adult novels, you sometimes are kind of thinking, when is the story gonna? Yeah, kick in, yeah. It's you know, like they're like, watching TV and describing what they're seeing rather yeah. than using the medium of writing. And, and you writing. can't do that in, in books for younger readers. Yeah. You, you have got to get, you've got to have an appealing character. You have got to have a story with a solid plot, and you've got to get into it and fast. really emotionally evolve them right yes. away. It, how do you do that? Is it usually some sense of injustice to hook them? Or? I think that that is. I think that that certainly that that level of sympathy. You know, you see it like in the Harry. Potter book, you know, the idea that really quickly in the story, he's living under a staircase. He has this uh, terrible, abusive aunt and uncle and cousin, you know, and that, that, yeah, that sense of injustice, that sense of, you know, you sympathize, gets you on board emotionally with that character. I mean, you see in the, like the Pixar, look at how like a lot of Pixar movies now often open with sometimes, you know, quite yeah, are we going to talk about Up? Or can yeah, we, let's oh. not talk about Up. It's yeah, but it has like such a downer. I know. Yeah. Let's not do but that one. But doesn't it? Yes. I thought it works really oh, well yeah. because it is. It's, it's super sad. It's but gorgeous. then you are on board with that character uh, for the you know the rest of the journey. Yeah, and, I'm hooked. Right, and yeah. it's bittersweet too. I mean, you can't have happy without sad, and they'll yeah. really set you up. And well, then, yeah. I think also the stakes because you look at the trend in um, you know YA dystopian and YA you know sort of apocalyptic novels in the last decade or so i think young adult novels are not scared of saying like the world might end if this issue is not resolved right, right? and mm -hmm. i don't think that happens as much in adult novels yeah yeah <laughs> um, that purity of thought is really important too yeah, in raising yeah. people determined to fix that problem yeah yeah yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. You need somebody laser focused right on some end of the spectrum well and in some way you know some of those apocalyptic novels the the character might not be able to fix the world, mm. but how are they going to, uh, be able to, uh, you know, find their own place mm. and survive in this really difficult world? Um, yeah. cause I do think that one of the other things that we want as readers in encountering a book is that we want to, we want a character to transform in some ways we want to see, and, you know, and I think that that's so much a part of, in, in childhood we are making enormous transformations in who we are, you know, finding our sense of identity, our place in the world. Often as adults, 
we get a little more settled into a particular identity or a sense of where our lives might be going. And, and so, but you as a reader, when you see that character, like that character in Up, the, you, know, the, you know, where it has a sad opening, it's like you want something really good for him. You want to see this kind of transformation happen in his life in some way yeah. that you're hoping that the story will provide. And, and as a writer, you often have to think in terms of, yeah, what is it that the reader as quickly as possible at the beginning of the story, what is it that I'm going to get the reader on board with that they are going to want to see happen potentially for a character? And, and maybe it will not come out the way they're imagining at that early stage of the book, but if it draws them in, you know, then that's what you want. I mean, that's what we want as readers. We want to get engrossed in a book right away and we want to not want to put it down uh, for until it's finished. And so that's one way I think of trying to help provide that for the readers is to think about what they, you know, what it is that's going to, that they're going to want to have happen for this character. Huh. So. Well, why do you think dystopian novels are so popular now? I, I worry that it's because there's so many catastrophes are always crashing in on you these days. You yeah. can't escape them. They come in through the media all the time. And I worry it's created this world where the kids seem, feel hopeless about the future or that there's just so many problems. But why do you think they're so popular? I think part of it is that, I mean, there have been people who have put out studies that have said, you know, that dystopian novels often that the political climate will um, influence, you know, like Harry Potter, which is not the opposite of a dystopian novel, was kind of coming out in the 90s, which was like an era of a lot of optimism and, mm. you know, and um, that sometimes when we take a little darker turn that the books will reflect that. Um, but I also wonder if some of these dystopian novels are a little bit metaphorical, like mm -hmm. for the, especially the teenage experience that you feel like that there's a lot of things out of your control in the world, you know, the way, you know, the Hunger Games, you know, where you're pitting teenagers in a death match against each other in a way is, some ways is the way it might feel in high school that right. you are, you, right. oh, you and these other people are absolutely. being, you know, yeah. or might be pitted against one another and it's, you know, a dog eat dog world in, in school. So, um, so I think sometimes that, that they just kind of speak to the teenage experience right. more than a hopelessness about the world or, mm -hmm. you know, well, so. I think also, and this is, maybe this is silly, but I, I read those books like the hunger games. Um, and I think, Oh my gosh, she's like 16. Like I need to get my act together. Like mm. I always walk away thinking I have more capabilities than I'm aware of, right? you know, and I think that's a positive spin. And so if that's one of the things that you get out of it is that, you know, sort of undaunted, this uh -huh. character persists and is able to, you know, succeed in a way, you know, at the end or have some success, then it feels very much like, okay, I can do that too. Right. Like, okay, yeah, I've got to be able to, if she can do that, I can do that. And I, I think that fairy tales often, you know, mm. you think of like uh, some of those fairy tales operate maybe in the same way of, you know, you see someone put in this horrible, you know, situation, yeah. you know, yeah. big bad wolf is out there or this horrible stepmother, you know, evil stepmother kind of thing. And that you see the character get through it, uh, somehow. And that it does, it gives you this, it gets you thinking about what would I do in that situation? How right. would I, you know, do I have the resources to handle it? Um, and imagining that, yeah, you could, yeah, that I could, I could do this. I could. Get yeah. And, and almost every story, you know, the, the classic hero's arc is just as they're about to get it all, they start to lose it all. Right. right. And they have to just take one more step and dig out from under. And that teaching of resilience, I think is 
that, isn't that the key to life? Yes. You know, right. yeah. just to take one more step. And, right. and then that's just the difference between success and failure is how resilient are you? And that's what mm-hmm. those things do seem to teach. Well, maybe that's why adults come back to it. Cause we're just like, we're, we're the ones who wake up every morning and we're like, can we, I'm not sure. Let me read this book. Yes, I can do it. <laughs> yeah, I can make right, it. You know, right, we need yeah. the, maybe we need the reassurance. Um, I wanted to Adding ask coffee. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, exactly. If coffee and a YA novel was how I could start every morning. Uh, get up at 5 a.m. for that. Yeah, yeah, me too. I would. I think we should have reading hour again yeah, at work. If you right. could start a day for an hour and get your coffee on, mm. like that's, that's adulthood. I'll, I would pay bills for that. <laughs> uh, so uh, I want to switch gears to talk a little bit about your teaching. So sure. when did you know you wanted to become a teacher? I came from a whole family of teachers. My, oh, cool. my mom was a teacher, my grandmother, my aunts. Um, and so I, I even have a great uncle who was uh, uh, the chancellor of at UNC. Oh, and cool. So, yeah, Bill Aycock back in the 60s. And so I have this whole kind of family of teachers. And so I just kind of grew up around teachers. And um, so when I went up to, to UNC Chapel Hill, I went as a teaching fellow. Like I got at the time they had the teaching fellow scholarship, which was – you know, you, if you taught for four years, it was a full ride. Um, and so I went into school knowing that's what I wanted to do. And quickly, I, th- I think, decided on elementary education, um, in part because it seemed more interesting to spend the day doing a little science, a little social studies, some reading, some, you know, like doing, you know, have that variety in the day rather than being that kind of teacher where I'm just going to teach one chemistry class right after the other. And so, that had that appeal to me. Although when I did my student teaching, I did it with kindergartners. And because I had this professor at UNC, this male, you know, I was the only, when I was there at UNC, I think I was the only male elementary ed major at the time. Um, and this, I had this one professor who, and he, he kept saying, you know, kindergarten, I, I was a kindergarten teacher. You should be a kid, you know, like we oh, need yeah. men in kindergarten, you know, do kindergarten. And I did that student teaching experience in kindergarten, I realized these kids are crazy. I, I cannot, <laughs> I have no control over what's going on in this class. And so then when I applied for a job, I immediately was like fourth or fifth grade sounds pretty good to me. So uh, now I could probably go now that I've had a, uh, you know, been a parent, I think I could probably handle kindergarten and would love it. But at the time it was, you know, it's a 22 year old. You're like, Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, that's also the golden age. One of the things I found fifth, from working, yeah. yes. oh. you know, with working with different age groups, is that the, that's the age where they've discovered learning and oh, knowledge. Yeah. They're so in love with their own ideas and have a real big sense of ownership over it. And that's so energizing as it an adult is, to be yeah. around kids that are that unfettered about their thinking. Really? But the sad part is, to me, at some point that gets squelched, and I, I haven't put my finger on how and why. I don't know. I don't know. I think that it's just developmental th- things that go on with with, ch- with children. You know that. You mean uh, getting self conscious about? Yeah, yeah. I think that some of it is just. Or I don't know that it's necessarily things that we as adults or institutions are doing to kids. I think it's just kind of a natural part of you know as you're going into puberty that you know, that just kind of puts you in that that place a little bit. I mean, there are things that we could do to try to support kids to keep that enthusiasm up and that, you know, love for learning and maybe being a little more, um, you know, friendly in their social, you know, instead of getting really morose and, you know, as I was when I was in seventh grade. So, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but there is something for sure. And is it Picasso? I think that has, he has that quote, you know, that, uh, every, every child's an artist. Yeah. Every child's an artist, and the, the trick is trying to hold on to that, or you know mm-hmm. that 
Yeah, that you know? sounds about right. I mean, I think, you know, you get that self-awareness and with self-awareness, it's such an easy slippery slope to sen- to self-censorship, right? Yes. Like yes. It, once you become aware and you're aware of other people and you're aware that people are aware of you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ironically, when you start judging yourself too, yeah. you kind of kill the rhythm of your work. If you're a yeah, writer, you'll start killing true. the rhythm of your words and the flow of your ideas. It's, right. I don't know how you get in that space. On the other hand, a child that remains unfettered. You know, I was once t- teaching, um, I think it was a fourth, fifth grade combination Montessori class, and there was a child there whose brain just didn't stop. Right. And about 20 pages into his short story, I was like, okay, James Joyce, we'll just move on here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you, so did you, when you were teaching, did you really have a heavy focus on writing, creative writing in, with your kids, or did you, how did you start? teaching writing to kids? Well, um, I mean, at the time I, I really, I probably wasn't doing necessarily more with creative writing than what other classroom teachers were doing, but it was the reading that reading the books with kids that I think drove me into wanting to be a writer myself. Oh, very know? cool. So it was, you know, not only pulling out a lot of those finding class sets of the books that I loved when I was their age, you know, Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe or Wrinkle in Time, but also discovering a lot of the new books that were being written. I mean, children's literature has never been better. It's than exploded. It, it is yeah. now. And especially, you know, the past 20, 30 years, it is, ooh, there's just been some of the best books ever written for young people have been written in during this time period. And so it was that excitement, enthusiasm of, of seeing the way they were responding to these books and just getting to talk about characters and stories. And uh, that got me to that place where I had always enjoyed writing, uh, you know, for fun, but didn't necessarily do a lot of it, um, except from time to time. But this was a period where I started coming home from school. This was before I was a parent, mind you, but <laughs> I would come home from school, um, you know, as elementary school, so I didn't have to do sports or, you know, do my pl- lesson plans and grades and papers, but otherwise I could be home and have time in the late afternoon or into the evening, you know, instead of watching TV, just spend working on stories and spend, you know, years and years, uh, as a classroom teacher doing that and thinking about like, yeah, what was it that, what, what could I do here that would really appeal to these kids that I'm teaching, you know, thinking specifically about kids in my class. That, huh. that well, was- so you said you were motivated by the way they responded to these stories. How did they respond? Can you describe well, that? Yeah, I, I think that just the, you know, as a, as an adult, we, you know, we, we can, we can really love books and, um, and a particular story, but there's something in particular about kids, especially at that age, you know, this fourth and fifth grade age and into middle school where they can just become obsessed with the worlds of, you know, just really want to be, because I think that experience of reading it, they are deeply into that world with the character. Um, and will often want to return again and again and again to these, you know, we can, you know, a book that they love, they would just sit there and they can read it five, six times in a row, which we wouldn't necessarily do that so much as an adult. So I think it speaks to that level of, of, of how much they are investing hmm. emotionally and intellectually into the characters in the story. So. so when you write your books, do you like to think about kids living in your books? Like yeah. That? Yeah. I try to think about, yeah. Yeah. What would make this, you know, what could I do to this story to even make it great on a reread, you hmm. know, that, that if someone's going to come back that they might not catch the first time, but then the second time around they'll go, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. So there's, there's fun things you know, to do with it like that. Do you use cliffhangers? Some, is, yeah, is chapter endings yeah. or on the story either, endings. Either, either, so. just as a device. Yeah, yeah, cliffhangers are a great device, you know. Um, it, hey, 
there is no tool that is off limits if it will just get people hooked on the story and they want to keep, you know. Yeah. Oh God, cliffhangers are diabolical. I, I love them. <laughs> They're so good. I love yeah, them. Yeah. You got to use it in the right way where it doesn't infuriate your reader. So, yeah. Well, and just like that, uh, you know, if it's a cliffhanger at the end of a book and there's a moment that happens and then when you pick up the sequel and for me, if you don't pick back up at that moment, like if, depending on how it's written, like if you, if you shoot me months into the future, you're, I just get, I will rage, shut that book for a minute and put it down and then be like, I can't believe they did that to me. I'm a little insulted. I need that. Yeah. Like I really, I really, that's, I'm a sequential storyteller thinker. So I'm really thinking like, this is a big moment and I want to see the fallout. But then when that does happen, I'm so rewarded. So it's those writers have spoiled me of they've, they've really held on to this moment. We've, we've taken a breath collectively for like 18 months or two years or whatever. And then we're, we we go back in. I I love that. Yes. That's my favorite. Um, so want to talk a little bit about your teaching, uh, academically gifted kids. So what's the most challenging part of working with Mm. gifted, uh, and academically talented kids and what's the most rewarding part? Yeah. Uh, let's, I mean the challenging, sometimes it's, it's, uh, dealing with parents. Sometimes (laughs) that was something that, um, that parents rightly so have high, high expectations for what the classroom teachers are going to, you know, what the school is going to provide for their children. And so some of that was just like communicating in the best way to parents, what we were doing in the classroom, Mm. you know, that, that, that why we were doing, you know, like why we were spending all this time doing this particular activity, um, just so that they can, you know, to help them understand the, the educational purpose and value of what we were doing. What so. they were pushing you to teach their child something more advanced or further down the road Sometimes, or yes. And sometimes there was that. Um, cause I remember sometimes there were, there were kids that were very bright math students that, that, um, but didn't necessarily love math. You mm. know, that my, my guess was that they were probably not going to wind up a math major in school. And, but if the parents wanted to really start to push them into some accelerated math, I was having to help them at least just talk about it as a discussion to think about, okay, but if we do this now, what will this mean by the time they are an 11th or 12th grader mm. in high school? Because the level of math that they'll be having to take could be not that they won't be able to handle it, but will they really love math that much that they will want to be doing that high level of, math? you know, that, that, and that could, it, it, for some kids that might be the perfect way to spend their senior year is, is with that. And for other kids, that might really ruin a uh, <laughs> senior year to be have to handle. Does that make sense? That kind of yeah. Thing? Are you yeah. saying that you helped negotiate the difference between what the parent wanted for the child and what the child seemed to naturally sometimes, want? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. And so sometimes it was just having that discussion so that people kind of understood how this. But you know, like yes, their child, your child needs um, needs more challenge in math and can handle some some more challenging concepts, um, but the the best route to that might not necessarily be sending the kid right now, uh, a, you know, a fifth grader over to the middle school for a class during the mm. day. You know, that there might be things that we could do here at the school instead um, that would put them on a slightly different track, but is still going to develop, you know, their, their kind of mathematical thinking and concept, you know, all that kind of. Yeah. Stuff. Well, so, and I wonder, it's that that's a negotiation between what you're really good at and what you really love. And those are not always the same thing, right? right? Um, right. like even, you know, as an adult, there's, you know, things that I'm talented at, but I, I would drag, 
myself before I, (laughs) before you make me do them. Um, so it is, it's like, how do you, how do you negotiate that? I mean, I think here at tip, we're lucky because we, uh, we offer so much enrichment that we get to find fun ways to get at developing skills that are not so much like, uh, attaining a certain level of knowledge, right? Like that's not the chief uh, being able to, to spit out content at the end of the experience is not generally a tip goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, right. But, but also, but meeting the challenges. So how do you do that? Like that's, that's what I hear when I, when you say that, yeah. that there's yeah. a way, how are you meeting the challenge, but not making the end result that the, the child is a mathematician, Yeah, you know, six months yeah. later or whatever. Yeah. I think, I think I actually, one reason I love doing new things all the time is that gives me permission not to be perfect at them mm-hmm. because the activities, because I actually enjoy activities I'm bad at more than the things I'm good at because you have this pressure to be perfection. Right. Yeah. And you know, I think a lot of gifted kids have that. And, and the joy yeah. of just being able to try something and mess it up is great. Right. I yes. Think. But that is something that we often have to, to work with our gifted kids to help them with. Cause for some, for a lot of them, they feel like if they're not good at something. They don't want to do it because right. they're so good at other things. And right. that feels really good that there's a lot of reward in that. But for some of them, the, the reward of, you know, the, the feeling that they get when they do something that they're not good at doesn't feel so great, but it's good for them to do it. They need to, to learn that. Yes, you can, we're all bad at everything when we first start something new and you, you, you have to, to work at it, to get good at it, you know, that there's a, there's something really rewarding and satisfying in that, you know, there's a, a, uh, someone I met at a gifted uh, conference a few years ago said he had two kids and he said he wanted to get a plaque made uh, on top of their door jam so that when they left for school every day, they saw this, this plaque and it would read fail faster hmm. yeah. and more frequently. Right? right. Like it was just like, go ahead and get the failures out of the way as right. many as you can under your belt, because right. they're going to help you learn um, and get to where you need to be a little bit more quickly. Yeah. And if you can accept failure, there's a fearlessness that goes with that. That yeah. really will help you go beyond what everybody else knows into the right. boundaries of things people don't know. Well, and especially for, I mean, even for artists, right? Like, especially for oh, yes. artists, like oh, you, yeah. like pro, that's where proliferation becomes really important. Like you think about some, some of the, the big writers, you know, and, and big artists, like how much this, the body of work, Yes, that that's the, the sort of fearlessness. I'm just going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to finish it. And I don't know if it's good and it's going to be this that's and right. I'm going to keep moving on instead that's of right, judging yeah. it, instead of stopping to judge these sort of gemstones along the way. Right. 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 Um, so I think that might actually be a good segue. Sure. I think we did that just sort of organically. That's right. really great. Thank you for telling <laughs> us more about yourself and what you do, John. Um, the last segment is called Failure is Instructive. Failure is growth. Failure is learning. Failure is one option. In this segment, we remember that it's okay to fail. As the philosopher John Dewey wrote, failure is not mere failure. It is instructive. The person who really thinks learns quite as much from his failures as from his successes. Katie, what have you learned from your failures this month? Keep the list short, please. Okay. I'm going to go with the cake. <laughs> really? Uh, I'm going to go with the great cake pop debacle of 2017. <laughs> pop? Yes. A yeah. cake, cake pop, pop is like a little ball of cake on the end of a stick. And if you go on Pinterest, oh. they're perfect. They're like dipped and Yeah, frosting. they're really pretty. They're, and you bite into them. And then there's a little bite of cake. They're really fabulous. So my daughter wanted to make them for a party she had last Thursday night. And I helped her make them. And then 
then she had to go pick up her friends and bring them back to the party. So they start out these perfect little balls of cake at the end of sticks on this big circular stand. There's like 40 of them. And as she starts to go, I see that they're slowly starting to slide down their poles <laughs> and head toward the bottom. And so she leaves and she says to me, she's leaving, Mom, I'm going to call you after I'm picked up everybody on the way home and, and pull all the cake pops back up to the top of the sticks because she's a perfectionist. Like, nice. Like a lot of You're going to time it. So. I'm going to time yeah. it. So I'm, you know, waiting by my cell phone, you know, <laughs> for the big call. Well, it soon became obvious that no matter how many times I pull these cake pops <laughs> up to the top, they were going to just slide right to the bottom. So after about six rounds of pulling them back up, I just said, forget it. And by the time the kids got there, it was the most interesting centerpiece I've ever created. Nice. <laughs> these cake balls were at all different heights along the sticks. They looked almost Star Trekian. Yeah. It was sort of like, yeah. what? They looked like planets orbiting or or those Christmas lights you can put in the trees, those round ones at different heights like and a, stuff. Like I a said, diorama. I mean, we're just going to go with it. you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. a diorama. It was so futuristic and they didn't care. You know, They, they were too busy eating them. I'm sure to they really taste care. the same, yeah. right. yeah, whether right, or not they right. look like a pop or something. It, oh, yeah, yeah, they were good tasting. So it's just a let it go moment, you know? Yes. John, how about you? Any failures to share? Yeah, I was I was thinking about it, and uh, the the one that jumped out to me is is just the and I'm not sure. I'll be interested to see what you all think about. That. I'm not sure what the the lesson exactly is. So this is more for to get your your thoughts on this. But yeah, you know, I read a lot of books to my daughter at night, and uh, even at you know, even at night, it's been great. You know, she still wants to hear hear a book. And so we had been reading um, Rebecca Stead. We'd gotten into this writer. She wrote uh, um, When You Reach Me. And my daughter loved that one. Um, and then we did Liar and Spy, and that one was great. And then the, a newer book had come out by Rebecca Stead called uh, uh, Goodbye Stranger. An amazing book. But, you know, as, you know, this is the difference between being a parent and I think sometimes being a classroom teacher. It's like as a classroom teacher, any book that I would have read to my class, I would have vetted it first. But right. as a parent, you're just often kind of winging this kind of operation. <laughs> and, you know, the, the book looked great. We're going to start reading it. And then as I got into the book, because it's set with these middle school girls in New York City, just, um, you know, realistic contemporary fiction. And at one point, one of the girls has, has her cell phone and she says to her friend, you know, like, oh, look, this, and what's that a picture of? Oh, it's this boy's knee. And then he wants me to send a picture of my foot. And then, you know, for my nine-year-old, it was like, yeah, you know, like whatever. But I realized, you know, mm-hmm. as an adult, like where this was, where this was headed. Oh no, right. gateway body parts. Yes, yeah. exactly. You know, and a super important conversation mm-hmm. to have. Mm-hmm. But I was trying to think with my nine-year-old, is she quite? You know, is so it's that kind of. So ultimately, I will say, and I'm not sure this was the right call, but ultimately, I, I, I read ahead a little bit to see where it was going, and it was definitely headed in that direction. Mm-hmm. And so, and I realized that was going to be the focus of, of the book, was kind of the ramifications of all this. And so it was the first book that I've had where I stopped it with my mm-hmm. daughter and said, you know, I'm not sure that you're quite, that this is, you're quite ready for this, mm-hmm. that we might give it. Another couple of years. You know, if she'd been 12 or 13, I would have felt like that. Yeah, right. Yeah, but right. I still don't know that that was the right call. You know, because it's that whole idea of, yeah, as do we, you know, this was not a young adult book. This is a book that is being, is meant to be read by a middle school mm. kid, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and not some, you know, not necessarily a 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. You know, it's meant to speak to, to them. But, you know, for my fourth grader, you know, it's that whole idea as a, as a, 
as a parent or even as an educator, you know, like our, or a librarian, you know, right. like, are there books that we're going to say no to kids on or like, don't, you know? And, well, I well, think as know, the parent, that was your call. First of all, if anybody's going to make that call for your daughter, it's you as the parent. Yeah. Secondly, props for not reading her gossip girl as an oh, yeah, example yeah, of right. young girls in right. New York city. Yeah, yeah. But thirdly, I think it's really important to protect that sphere of innocence in children yeah. for as long as possible because the world just dumps all that stuff on you soon enough. Right. And at nine, if she's not going there and doesn't understand it's going there, then mm-hmm. I definitely think you made the right call in giving her that space yeah. to live in a little bit longer before all that stuff starts. Right. But did you all have books that you read at that age that you were that, – that were you know a little more mature content than uh, what you were for sure. ready for I mean, time? Yeah, and I was – I mean I was – you know, a gifted kid, I was reading ahead of my level sure. a lot. And so right. I was encountering books that I was pretty, probably really not supposed to read or I was going to read five years later. Right. Um, and I remember, this is a different example, different direction, but I remember sitting in like fourth grade, maybe fifth grade and reading Jurassic Park. Huh. Oh, yeah. Like the first, you know, Jurassic Park. Right. And and um, I just remember it got pretty gory. There was just yeah. like this like a comment about like the dinosaurs and what they were, the body parts they were eating. And, the, and there were some references I didn't quite follow. And I think I just sort of glossed over them. Like I, I think I, I was like, oh, this is, I don't think I would be able to watch this or see these, you know, legs flying or arms, whatever right. the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex. And so the, I did have those experiences. And I don't know if I just sort of didn't encounter the ones like you're talking about just yet. But I was I was starting to read like a lot of adventure books, and so I, I was right. like, "How? Let me raise the stakes. Bring dinosaurs in." Wow. And it was because the movie had had recently come out, right? And yeah. so I was one of those kids that liked reading the novelization or the the original book. Right. Like I would be like, "Oh, this was a cool movie. Let me read the book because this oh, is oh, that's be my favorite thing. Even better, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And then I'd be like, "Oh, yeah, no, there was not a bloody leg." Wow. In the movie. Well, my father was a book editor, so we literally had stacks of books as right. tall as we were. We walked around, and my mother was getting her major in English. And so, you know, there were books everywhere, and nobody stopped me from reading anything. But the one book she ever took away from me was Miss Lonely Hearts by Nathaniel West. Okay. And I think it was nine or 10. Right. And she kind of looked at it and said, I don't think you're quite ready for that, and took it away. So, of course, the first thing I did was find out it. where she had hid it and read yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, did you? Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. absolutely. Dark. You know, right. dark. Um, but but even just knowing that she started to censor that gave me some context for yeah. it, I mm. think. But yeah, I would be wary of where you've hidden this latest book because oh, yeah, my yeah, guess right. is she's thinking she about have... right now where to find yeah, it. Yeah, and she's such a rule follower that I could see that you know, that she wanted to re- – because she, she did ask later, can I just read it on my own? Oh, yeah. And that's where I thought about it. Being a, you know, I was still kind of questioning whether I'd made the right call on it because because I do think that when you're younger and you might encounter something that you're not quite ready for, a lot of times you just gloss over yeah. it. It just doesn't make sense to you. And you just go on with you the rest of keep the story. Moving. You know, I don't remember ever being really traumatized by something that I read in a book in the Mo- way that sometimes I saw horror movies. Yeah, it's the and movies it that get a, me. Yeah. And I, I have a lot of memories of being just frightened, you know, like really yes. like accidentally watching like The Exorcist or something. Yeah, and you're like, I wish like, I hadn't seen that. I just like, you can't, like, you can't unsee it. You know, I was a visual kid too, so. I brought my sister to see it when she was 11. She's never forgotten. 
or forgiven me. Yeah, that was awful. Why did you do that? I don't know. I was (laughs) 17. I had bad judgment. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or just like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Uh which was the movie that gave us the PG-13 rating. Oh, is that right? Yes. Bit of trivia for film buffs. Uh, Because they couldn't figure out where to put it. It wasn't PG. It wasn't R. And it was, it's what, it's the gift that they gave to us was PG-13. PG-13. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think in some ways the inappropriate content is about external expectations. Mm. And if you can keep your child from having to deal with those, it gives them more time to develop their internal moral core and fortitude and their own kind of thoughts and direction. And I think that's something that's missing, unfortunately, for a lot of younger kids these days. Mm. Well, I've got something that I would like to share. There's a failure. This is pretty funny. Um, I think it's funny. Uh, So I am getting married. Uh, this Saturday. Congratulations. Thank That's you. It's very exciting. What a week ahead. I know. I know. I'm in the home stretch. Um, and part of getting married and, and getting the information out to your guests is to, to talk about attire, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and dress code. So this is one of those, the princess bride, like you keep using that word, you know, it does not mean what you think it means moments where I set the attire to uh, semi-formal and cocktail because I'd read it, seen it on other weddings. I was like, that sounds about right. You know, this yeah. isn't black tie. I know what that is. And I don't want anyone in jeans. So how do I land, you know, and putting formal, even semi-formal seems like it elevates it a little bit. Um, so I had a, a, a guest of our wedding, a friend of mine, a good friend from college, uh, lives in Edinburgh in Scotland. And so he's trying to figure out how to pack and he wanted to just get some information. So he said, okay, I saw the invitation. I saw him for a cocktail. Um, do I need to wear a suit? Do I need to pack a suit? I just want to know. Cause that changes my luggage situation, which is very sweet you know, forward thinking thing to say. And I always said, no, you don't need to wear a suit. Somebody form a cocktail. You just wear a dress shirt and a tie. It's totally fine. Nice pants. And he said, are you sure? Because I really don't want to look out of place. You know, you know, your family, you know, your guests, I will do whatever you want me to do because it's your wedding. I can't wait to see you. And I said, no, no, it's totally fine. And then I told my fiance, I was totally wrong. Like semi-formal and cocktail is suit apparently. Oh. And this is subjective a little bit, right? Like you could go to a gazillion websites and there's examples. Dress code is just one of those things that could go in any direction, but apparently suit is totally appropriate. And then the casual version is like a blazer. So my friend, I have not told my friend, I was like, you know what? It's already happening. I hopefully he'll be fine. You know, there's always that person who shows up in jeans anyway. So there, there is always somebody who, <laughs> who is much more casual. Yes. So, and that will probably be the least of your problems. Right. Like if you have any relatives like, like mine. It's pretty small of an issue, but it's a social concern that I, that a friend had and I wanted to do the yeah, well, right you thing. You want them to feel comfortable. Right. And not be out of, you know, yeah. out of place. So I was like, you know, this is one of those things that people care about. I'll care about it too. But apparently I didn't know what I meant. Oh. So wait, should Tracy call her friend and say, yeah, wear a suit. Has in he the left yet? Uh, no. No, he hasn't left yet, but he did respond right away. Oh, I was going to do whatever you wanted, but thank you so much because I didn't want to have to pack a suit. Yeah. It is wow. a pain to travel with a suit, but it's... Yeah. I don't I think, think so. I, say... I think you could come back and say... Here's some links. To... <laughs> or just, I've, heard from other, I've heard from other guys, and it sounds like many of the other guys at the wedding That's are going good. to wear suits. Yeah. But I, I just want to give you that heads up because you, you might be a little more casual yeah. than some of them yeah, yeah. but yeah. if you won't yeah. if you're comfortable with that 
I'm totally fine yeah. with. But then add, but feel free to take it off right away and dance on the tables if right. you want. Yeah. And then you'll right. have a really fun wedding. Yeah, but. I was like, I was thinking, like, could he borrow? One? Like, I mean, that's kind of iffy too. You know, you mean like at a nightclub. <laughs> no, here's, sir. Here's a size 44 plaid jacket. You from know, 1940 actually, to wear. I would consider that at the wedding because I just, you know, some yeah. people just don't know, don't read any dress code. He asked, you know, so yeah. I, I did say no jeans, and he said, oh, don't worry, I won't be doing that. So at least the only thing I worry about with him is that if if he asks that he's the type that it might really bug him if he got there and it, it would that's true now, see i can see you're very empathetic no wonder that you're is very, such that good is very nice of you <laughs> he doesn't know this person and he's concerned I know, about it that's yeah. true he's a good fiction writer yeah. well i'll also say that i i think that he should have just packed the suit and not bothered asking you personally oh, but yeah etiquette <laughs> so, I, yeah sorry if you're listening to this yes. i don't mean to be judgmental all of a sudden but it'll it be like john's a, the perfect guest it'll be like a month later yeah it'll be by the time this airs it'll have happened okay yeah, yeah. sorry I've done but deal. i will yeah. i will maybe i'll go back and say yeah, in the notes to the podcast could you let us know what happens the, the edit wedding? next episode i'll tell you what happened oh, excellent. all right yeah excellent. that'll be fun uh, so uh well that brings us to the end of this very first episode of the duke tip podcast john claude bemis thank you so much for being on the podcast uh do you want to tell us where we can buy your books oh online well or you can source? yes i guess people listening to the podcast are going to be everywhere so you can barnes and noble your local independent bookstore if they have good taste and if they uh, <laughs> if they don't have it in stock I'm, I'm sure that they can they can order it for you of course it's on amazon and um, great i have a website johnclawbemus.com and it has the links to all that so it's a very cool website actually oh, I like there's lots of photos of your travels and stuff like yeah. that and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and book recommendations so for young readers who are looking for some books oh, oh that's good yeah, you did some mention some great ideas, books yeah. you were reading to your daughter would they be on your website yes. okay yeah, they'll be on good. There. because they're they've on there. been vetted uh, yes, the, the ones on the, I, I can vouch for the ones that are on the website is embedded. Yeah. Listen, you're a parent reading to your child. You are so far ahead of the yeah, game. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, all right, and th- so thank you again, and to our listeners out there, if you have an O. You know what I learned you'd like to share or any failure is instructives uh, to send in. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to podcast at tip.duke.edu or leave us a voicemail at 919-668-9127. Visit tip.duke.edu to learn all about Duke Tips programs and how you can get involved. Bye-bye.